0: Welcome to RPG Ramblings with Jeff Jones. This is a weekly show exploring the various details of the tabletop RPG hobby through discussions with interesting people. This week, Timothy Connolly of the Benchleydale Academy joins me. Benchleydale is a Facebook group that seeks to keep advanced Dungeons and dragons alive by running games. A lot of games. So if you're not getting your one E itch scratched, head over there and join in on the fun. the way through, I asked him to adjust his mic for the possible sound quality improvements In editing, the irony is not lost on me when I came to realize that I was recording from the wrong mic. Ugh. If you love the show, join the Patreon for as low as $1 a month, and you'll put a smile on my face. Grab your weapons, the expedition is ready to head out, and we have 500 miles to go before we reach the Barrier Peaks. Sisters and brothers, it is time to get rambling. Hello, Tim. Hello, Jeff. Well, thanks for joining me on this fine morning.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: <laughs> so, uh, Richard, before us, used to uh, so used to do a podcast back in the day.
1: Oh yes, Uh from 2006 until 2008, we did 26 episodes of Easy Town Radio, which was a variety show. It was a podcast with comedy and music and special guests and uh, we would occasionally read listener mail from all the folks who would write in sending us emails. A good time, that was a lot of fun. And uh, what we did was we centered each episode around a certain theme and each theme was always specific to one classic recording artist or one classic album. For example, we did um, an episode on the band Rush and we featured four of their songs. During the podcast, and we talked a little bit about the band and the history of the band, and we would share some insight. Being an industry insider, we had our finger on the pulse of what was going on then. I was a musician at the time with a band in New York, and I would later become a music producer. I had done that for more than 25 years in the entertainment industry and podcasting in 2006 was still very much a sort of what's that kind of a oh thing. oh
0: yeah no I know I, I was listening back then and all I could think of was boy I sure hope this doesn't go away
1: <laughs> it was cool um hats off to Apple and iTunes thanks to them at the time podcasting was really able to have a chance to become something special like it is today today it's I think just the beginning of what's going to be the golden age. We're not even in the golden age of podcasting yet. To. Can you believe that?
0: I know. Hey, Tim, could you put the microphone close to your mouth? It's I'm getting a little bit, I think it's the Bluetooth connection with the microphone, maybe farther away. There we go.
1: How's that? A little better? I think so. Yep. Okay. I'll try yeah, to speak w- a bit louder too.
0: No, you don't need to speak louder. It was it was almost not quite cutting out, but it's kind of was having a kind of a weird effect. Uh, yeah. And I, and I remember back then, you know, like I'm pretty fortunate and I have some pretty simple tools like I can throw in GarageBand. And and of course, mine is very low key production. But, you know, it's
1: GarageBand is exactly what we used when we were podcasting in <laughs> 06.
0: Oh, OK, so then it works out pretty good in that and Anchor. Makes it very simple, I just dump into anchor and it does everything else, and I think that probably was different back then. It was probably more manual process of, of going to apple and and I'm not sure how that was back then
1: yeah it was um it was primitive and but I gotta say about garage bend back in 06 the foley art that was at our disposal was amazing from applause to canned laughter to sound effects to anything we wanted to incorporate in the comedy sketches that we wrote and did for radio it was all very theater of the mind lampooning this or that or taking certain situations and turning them upside down it was very handy having all of those tools that garage band offered so cool and i think it was free at the time
0: yeah GarageBand garage band still is so it probably was then too
1: yeah it's great it's great
0: yeah what's going on
1: with rpg ramblings you've been doing this for a long time a a whole lot of episodes already so far i salute you you're closing out on episode 70 another cool milestone
0: yeah it's it's pretty crazy yeah i've i've uh i you know the the (laughs) all i knew is i just wanted to do a thing and i'm doing a thing and uh, i did plan on you know timing wise if it does eat up a fair amount of time of, of of slowing down but it's like no i really enjoy doing this
1: cool man keep it up
0: yeah and i you know and maybe i'll diversify out a little bit because i've had people come on i mean there's a person coming on in the future he's like well i don't i don't you know do any sort of um you know i don't i don't write any, any products it's like well it's not really the intent of this podcast you know was to have just content creators it's just You know, people that are interesting to talk to. And I find that, you know, most people that that are it seem to be that surface up at Facebook and different places are just fun people to talk to.
1: There are lots of great fun people to talk to, especially in this hobby. And when you can connect with RPG folks, whether they are content creators or enthusiasts. I mean, really, it's it's chock full of interesting folks with cool stories to tell going back years and years and uh, I have a question for you Jeff and my question is what year did you get your start with the RPG hobby how far back do you go with all of this
0: well the math is bad it gets all get fuzzy so whatever the it was it was going back to so I was probably in seventh grade whatever age it would be this would probably be like 78 maybe 79 I got a hold of the whatever the, the blue box is with the dragon, they're all Otis art in the, in um, the keep on the borderlands, the BX, whatever that was. That was the, the
1: basic mode base set, I think from 1981.
0: Yeah. So that's where I got my start and for the life of me. I don't know how I got it. I mean, I remember having it. I remember opening it up. I remember reading it. I remember r- trying to run it for some friends uh, who just didn't get it. Um, but I don't know what caused me to buy it. I don't know if it was the comic book ads, which I think is probably, probably where it happened. So you know, those infamous, or infamous those famous uh, TSR ads back in the day uh, would be in these comic books. I think that's right.
1: That's right. You would see them in DC Comics. I think I don't remember ever seeing them in Marvel Comics, but it was nice there was that crossover appeal. You have comic book readers who, um are very much their own niche. And to think of RPG hobbyists as very much its own niche too is is important now, but think of it with the perspective of back then when the RPG hobby was still in its infancy and how were they going to build up a clientele and the fan base and all that. I'm glad that they partnered up with the world of mainstream graphic literature because there were lots of kids who read comic books adults too but let's face it kids were the target demographic for comic books and when we were kids back then I was born in 70 so I was a kid in 78 when I first started playing advanced d I didn't even start with basic we our DM wanted to run an advanced and we were all looking at each other like, OK, why not? We'll try it. But we were kids then. So the point being, comic books was a great place to introduce folks to Dungeons and Dragons. Um, it would have been nice if comics also introduced kids to other RPGs, because D&D wasn't the only choice then. There were lots of flavors
0: yeah but i think the thing is they, they're the ones that had the money and so they started out from the obviously from the wargaming crowd and they had and to it cash in hand first
1: <laughs> i think it worked it helped
0: yeah and so i mean and, and, and you know back in the day if you want to buy you know if you want to go buy an rpg product you you'd go to a hobby store i'm not sure where that mulvey box set came from but i know that whenever we want to go buy modules we would have to go to the, the hobby shop, which would be, you know, trains and planes and That's cars. Right. It wasn't uh, right. It wasn't until later that it actually became big enough to actually make it to like, like the Walden books.
1: And then Toys R Us, you could eventually go to and start to find some of those things that the larger game chains, even KB Toys was another game chain oh, yeah. store. Yeah. So you started to have more options, but it did begin with the hobby shops, like the train shops. And very interestingly enough, in Long Island, New York, where I was growing up at the time, discovering Dungeons and Dragons for my first time, the only place you could go were the comic book shops and the train hobby shops, if you wanted to get... D&D dice or if you wanted to get miniatures or if you wanted to get the books themselves and so I'm glad that those places I, took a chance. I think on in the my area stuff. I,
0: don't, I don't think the hobby shops, the, the comic book shops carried role-playing games until, in my area till much later. I, I think we it was a long time for that to get into there for my yeah, own reason.
1: It was certainly during the 1980s um, During my favorite years of the hobby, the first edition A, B, and D years from 1977 to 1989, that was and still is my jam today. And uh, when I'm DMing, it's the only system I use. And it's great to see all of these cool milestone anniversary years that popped up lately. Last year, we were celebrating the 40th anniversary of the Fiend Folio. And the year prior to that, we were celebrating Deities and Demigods. And the year before that, DMG and Player's Handbook and then Monster Man. It was so cool to be able to look back at all that stuff and see how it still resonates today and continues to not insult the intelligence of discerning RPG hobbyists. In fact, it'll only expand your vocabulary, thanks to... um, dmg mostly and with gygax's colorful prose right yeah
0: well you know i think the thing is it's like you know i wouldn't change a thing it's definitely an artifact of its time and i also do think like i agree with you that it, there is a there's a certain value in reading that i think it's kind of um you know kind of going back with other things i think a lot of people bristle at even older literature. Um, you know, even going back, just general literature going back 100 years or 200 years or even further, but, uh, but boy, the vocabulary level of the people in previous times are definitely much higher than what is, you know, kind of the standard today. And if you just take the time and make yourself read it. Uh, you will g- develop muscles and it won't be so bad. And even though it may always be purple prose, at least it'll be understandable for purple prose and you'll step up on your vocabulary uh, while you're at it.
1: That's a very good point. I love reading. <clears throat> As someone with severe hearing loss since childhood, today I'm approximately 90% deaf both ears. I've grown to become an avid reader and someone who doesn't turn on the television a whole lot someone who doesn't go to movies <clears throat> in theaters a lot for me I love reading I'll sing the praises of reading as loudly as the day is long and I encourage friends of mine who have young children who are you know just learning to read and whatnot <clears throat> encourage them to read and I've often given away stacks of comic books to kids, of friends, you know, hey, here, enjoy these, you know. Right. Comic books are a great gateway for kids to reading.
0: Well, they are. And in fact, I think that's what's interesting. Uh, In 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 times past, it was seen, uh, it was seen, uh, comic books were seen as kind of like as inferior literature. But it's, in a lot of ways, I guess the gateway, so It speak. is. It's the it cannabis of reading. But, the,
1: but to, uh, to further illustrate your point, to look back at books from 100 years ago, 150 years ago, it's great to go back and look at some of those classic literature books and revisit the classics. I would recommend anything by Edgar Allan Poe, anything by George Bernard Shaw, anything by Oscar Wilde, William Butler Yeats, all of that stuff is great to go back and revisit.
0: I remember and I went back, and even I went back to fourth century literature, is of course translations, uh, but uh, John Chrysostom. It's like, well, th- th- that it's is like, a real trip <laughs> for <laughs> sure, John Chrysostom. Yes, but I'm like, he is right. If you look at like, we always think that we're kind of the the smart ones, and you're looking at their limitations of what they had and what they were writing. I'm like, this is absolutely astounding that the amount
1: astounding and not everyone had the education back then that people have today people don't have access or didn't have access to education back then women weren't really being educated and unless you had money you weren't going to the the better universities and such
0: also what's kind of interesting too is if you go back to like say the 18th century a lot of people that were learning were more more polyglots i mean it's like there wasn't so much people would have an intense uh, understanding of one topic, but they would have broad understandings of a lot of things. And so you weren't just a person that would, you know, read literature. You also understood mathematics. You'd read astronomy. And a lot of those people, when they would write, um, you know, they could write on many different subjects and, um, and be at ease reading multiple languages.
1: That's right. And if you were a dentist back in those days, you were also the same guy who sawed people's <laughs> legs off when the time was called for it.
0: <laughs> by, by heart, Charlie, it's going to sting a bit.
1: <laughs> oh, boy. What a profession. How it's changed. If yeah, anything, it's the, become less than what to, uh, it was, was.
0: just a haircut. Yeah. You know what, would I be fine to find somebody with a barber pole with a stripe say, Do you do bloodletting? Because that's what you're advertising.
1: <laughs> oh, boy. Can you that make- reminds me, I should visit my barber again sometime <laughs> soon. With the hot weather that we get here in Las Vegas, it's important to keep the haircut short. <laughs>
0: yes, it is. <laughs> uh, um,
1: otherwise, you know, you're going to be sweating bullets. Um, well, not really. You made it so low here that you rarely do sweat, but. You know what I mean. You want to give yourself some sort of air conditioning up there, right?
0: Oh, yes. Uh, I guess the thing I was ask you because so I I grew up in a very small town. So twelve hundred people. I live in the Midwest and you know we'd travel for half an hour to go into the big city, which is like a hundred thousand people uh, in my high school. I would say uh, even though there wasn't a lot of us, but I said percentage wise, probably probably. Um, you know, maybe if I do the math, is that right? Yeah, probably at least 20 or 30% of people of the guys played RPGs. Um, That's a
1: healthy percentage.
0: Well, but when you only have uh, 50 people in your, in your class, it's really not. <laughs> it does take many, many people to tip it. But, you know, I know that, you know, for the Midwest, I think because, you know, what I've heard is the reason why the Midwest things are so popular is because there's nothing to do. There's nothing to do out here. Okay. And it's not New York there's nothing else to do, you know, go shoot a gun, and uh, go walk around, uh, watch TV, but there was nothing back then. But New York, you're in a cultural, uh, you know, the apex. I mean, you had all sorts of things within short distances. So, so how did you get in the hobby? And was it very, was there a lot of people involved in the hobby at that time?
1: Great question. There were not many people in my area involved in the hobby back then and i only knew from 1978 to 1981 i only knew of about 10 people who played and i met more as time went on but there there was that there was that strange mysteriousness to the hobby that held such a powerful allure for for those of us who were discovering it then. And it struck me as strange that the Dungeon Masters weren't really comparing notes with one another, sharing ideas, maybe different approaches to how to handle a certain mechanic within the game. There wasn't any of that. I I had thought that there would be more camaraderie and uh, an exchange of of ideas, Uh, but uh, Everyone existed in sort of a vacuum, I suppose. Maybe there was even this underlying current of of competition in a way, I suppose, among them. It was strange. There wasn't more unity in that.
0: Yeah, community. And I would say that's pretty true even for us. I think we had our group. And there was another group. People had their groups, but it wasn't. Um, and there's some people that would just play occasionally. And I would say that, I would say, I don't know that there was, for us, I can only speak for ourselves. I just think it was it. it there was, I guess, not was really seen as an—I don't say a need, but it's like it's like we had our friends, and they have their friends, and we oh, were kind well, of, of friendly with each other. But
1: of course, and because of the, you had these vacuums and these these groups in their bubbles. They were able to explore the hobby on their own terms, in their own way, without cross-pollination from how other groups might have been doing something. So no preconceived notions, just go and explore, right?
0: <laughs> well, now just go and explore. I mean, it really was like, you know, obviously the rules were obscure, are um, not very clear on a lot of things. And it there was, was no internet. It was open to
1: interpretation, absolutely. <laughs> and, <laughs> and there so weren't many like- resources. <laughs> not <laughs> everybody could pick up a copy of Dragon Magazine and and read the pages that would help to demystify the hobby for you.
0: And so, um, we, but we also just, of course, you they may not be answering the questions you have. And, and so there's a lot true. of just, and then I think also because we're young and we just felt we can just make up our own rules as we went. And so we would felt free to do that.
1: And that was a perfectly acceptable approach. And <laughs> I think that is great that you did that and that you didn't oh. get bogged down. Under oh, the, we all did. Oh my God, Everybody are we doing did. this <laughs> right? Yeah. You know. If you're yeah. having fun, then you're doing it right. That, well, that are, to
0: are your point, you're like, okay, this is broken. <laughs> it seemed like a good idea on paper. Well, <laughs> then that,
1: that's, when, that's when you go back to the beginning and start with first level characters again and with, yeah. with a new new understanding of, of how it should go. And it just continues to go on and on. It's, it's like the evergreen conifer pine trees that year in, year out, they're always nice and green for you. The hobby remains evergreen, too, as you find more ways to explore it and enjoy it and meet new folks to enjoy it with, because it's very sociable. And I think that uh, what we're doing at Benchleydale Academy involves leaving that open door for anybody who wants to immerse themselves in it and have it be a more immersive experience for yourself. You can... Totally have that, or sit back and enjoy the show, or lurk, or occasionally participate in the contests. But whatever you do, just know that there's an open door policy here for being sociable, and everyone is encouraged to to do that. I think in the hobby at large, whether it's first edition A and B, or whether it's Pathfinder, or whether it's Fifth Edition, or whether it's Gamma World, or Call of Cthulhu, or any of the wonderful. RPGs, there are so many, you can't even name them all. It's not possible. 20 years ago, you could name them all. But today, you really can't. And that's a good thing, I think, for the hobby, because it's going to have longevity beyond what any of us really thought it would. I guess I didn't think it would be anywhere near as popular as it is today. But I'm glad that it is as popular as it is today. And I hope to continue to see it increase in popularity. It's a cool niche. It keeps kids out of trouble. It keeps adults out of trouble too. Yeah. And, um, you know, you can spend very little money on it or spend a lot of money on it. Your choice. And rest assured, however much money you do choose to spend on it, it's enough. Take it from me. You can enjoy (laughs) that toy in your toy box and be perfectly okay with it.
0: Well, I think a lot Um, of ways that the hobby mirrors the the comic book industry. So, you know, you think back in when we were young, I think Marvel Comics and DC, they were at their heyday. And then it started declining. Right. Because they could not see the writing. They never went after any market other than what they had. There was manga just started coming into the America and into the United States gaining popularity blind to that we're just going to keep doing the things we're going to do then all of a sudden you know manga just exploded brought a lot of uh, uh, young uh, a lot of women into reading comic books and i think as the hobby became more acceptable to women uh but just like when i was younger women just not that there's anything like guys pushing them out, but society was that women just didn't, that just wasn't a thing that women did, but now it's more acceptable, but it's like the hobby just exploded with comic books, but Marvel and DC kind of got left behind until the movies started to make the money. And I think in a lot of ways now, they're way behind where they could have been if they just would have embraced, but it's like D&D in a lot of ways was like the only game in town, well, D&D, but a lot of those older games, but all of a sudden, Fresh people started coming into the hobby and just started taking things in different, unique directions, and it lifted everybody.
1: Here's a fun way to look back at the hobby. You and I, Jeff, right now, we'll go decade for decade. I'll ask you what your favorite RPG thing of all from that decade is. You give me your answer and explain why you chose that. We'll start with the 1970s. And then we'll do 80s, 90s, and so on. But from the 70s, what was your favorite thing from that decade, RPG-wise?
0: Oh, it would have been D and D. That was the only thing in the 70s.
1: Okay, why?
0: Well, I mean, I mean, that was the the game that I had, and that was the game that we played. I don't think I was really aware of. Of any other games in the seventies, it really wasn't until the eighties I really got to play. I think at that point I only ran a few games, and it wasn't until the eighties that I really we got a group of friends, and then we really started cranking out playing games.
1: Why do you suppose it was D and D in the nineteen seventies that was really the most prominent of the tabletop RPGs?
0: I think it's the most accessible, and I think it was. I think it was also the best marketed. I don't think. I think fantasy, I think in general, I don't think it has to be that way, but I think, I think the fantasy elements, I think because it, that's a good question. I think, I think the way that it grew out of Wargaming uh, origins and its initial somewhat simplicity like with the mold day, I think made it very accessible and relatively easy to understand and easy to run. And I don't think at the time there were the tools to run things that were complicated, narratively speaking. And I think probably those, the dungeons, probably the dungeon crawls made it a very accessible and fun experience for people. And I think at that time, I'd say, I think Traveler in a sense, there's no reason Traveler couldn't have been more uh, more successful, except uh, I think it was the adventures and how easy it was to start out the table is probably what made D&D most, ex- most successful. Because Traveler didn't really have that. And if you look at the early adventures, it's still kind of a mess. But at least we keep on the Borderlands. Hey, there's a dungeon. We're playing. And we can do that.
1: Good point. I remember Traveler, and I loved that Traveler mm-hmm. was a thing. And I... I always had heard about Traveler, and I'd seen the ads for it in Dragon Magazine, and I was dying to be invited into a Traveler game and, um, from the 1970s until about 2015. I went all those years without being invited. And finally, I was. And it was like a dream come true for me. And It was so much fun. And I do remember <laughs> Traveler being around in the 70s. And, but I think you hit the nail on the head, Jeff, when you said marketing. D&D had the marketing behind it. Uh, it Traveler it, did not.
0: Well, and I think the thing is, too, is at the time, they were blind. You know, of course, they were, when I say they, I mean, those early developers, they were blind to what people wanted. How would they know? Right. They know, because, you know, if you're Gary Gygax and you can whip up adventures like like this, you think, well, everybody's just going to want to run their own adventures. Nobody's going to want pre- pre-made pre adventures. But it's like, no, that's what people want. And really, it probably was Judges Guild, uh, you know, who said, <laughs> Gary, like, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I don't care. Go ahead and make your, you know, your nickels and your dimes. I don't care. And all of a sudden, they're making, they're making bank. He's like, hmm.
1: Judges Guild. Here's a funny story. I didn't know about Judges Guild at all until the 2000s. For me, it was a real revelation of of unearthing this incredible time capsule of the hobby that I had no idea about. And then I began to discover the modules that were being published for it, and being not blown away by the production value of them because let's face it they were they were not big on production value but it didn't matter well,
0: it's print on newspaper print right or as newspaper yeah uh, paper right
1: and the typesetting of it was you know it was all very amateurish and i get it and i know that they probably didn't have a whole lot to work with budget-wise but i i was so astonished to, to finally discover something that had been around and and had been a part of first edition a b and b for so long and uh, so for me it was real nice to discover that and it led me to discover some of my all-time favorite adventure modules such as dark tower
0: we ran, and, that. We ran that in the 80s
1: oh man love it love the idea of the subterranean underground dungeon that has one level where you go down through five levels. And then you got to go across this one big level to get to the other level that goes up another five levels. And those other five levels that go up are all magically darkened levels. Fantastic concept. Blew my mind. And I tried running it as a referee, as a DM, um, about 10 years ago. And we got pretty far with it. I'm glad to say that we tried. The group fell apart. I was having some health issues. I had to take a step back from a few things. And that was one of the things that I took a step back from. But my health is in a much better place these days. Okay. Oh, and yeah. So I'm able to enjoy the hobby just as much as I can.
0: So what were the challenges uh, running it? So what, what did you find when you're running it? What were the challenges? Uh
1: when I was running Dark Tower,
0: yeah, yeah, the
1: biggest challenge for me as a dungeon master running Dark Tower was trying to figure out what to do with those uh, those overpowered gems that would fly around and attach themselves to the foreheads of players <laughs> as if you're if you're going to run the module straight word for word, that was the biggest hurdle for me. So my ultimate decision as a referee. And I regret this decision. They say never regret anything, right? Because it always teaches you something. But in this case, I really do regret having hand waved the overpowered gems from the module. I think looking back, it would have been a lot more fun to randomly have these gems appear from out of nowhere and lodge themselves onto the foreheads of characters and then their entire personality changes as they become someone else and think that they're someone else and then have to be essentially someone else until the gem is removed. And to remove those magical gems from foreheads, it took a lot. And I didn't feel comfortable including that aspect of it then but now I absolutely love the Gonzo element of that. And I would totally, totally include that again next time I run Dark Tower. And I don't want to say if I run it, I'll say when I run it. Well, because we, I do wanna.
0: So when we ran, we were we we were teenagers. So there was no there was no there was no looking at a module and saying, you know what, is this overpowered or not? I mean it was it was as written whatever it, it was is. what it
1: was i get it how far did you
0: get with it i don't remember i remember i don't remember i do remember okay. i don't know
1: maybe your character was mutilated somehow so badly that it traumatized you so you <laughs> blocked it from memory and you'll never <laughs> recall what happened.
0: Well I ran and maybe it, and it. it's better that way I don't remember running it I just ran so many things. I remember owning it. I remember loving it. The jewel in the skull you know parking to Hawkmoon. It's very oh. comic booky, and I think there was like two factions, wasn't there? There was an evil faction, like the good faction, the gods, and being pawns, and, you know.
1: Jewel in the Skull, still, I think, my all-time favorite Michael Moorcock novel, and people think I'm crazy, uh, because some of his stuff was a bit more popular than that, so I could choose something a bit more popular, but that's not what, that's not what life's about, you know. Like what you like, and feel free to admit it, and don't be ashamed be your most authentic self at all times and okay so jeff i asked you about the 70s and you gave a good answer there now i'm going to ask you about the decade of the 1980s what was your favorite rpg thing from that decade
0: yeah because i'll there's really probably two because we we played, i would say a lot of different games i mean we probably ran I don't know, fifteen different systems. Uh,
1: nice! Oh wow, that eclipse is what I ran.
0: Yeah, like Boot Hill, Gamma World, Aftermath, uh, Moral Project, D and D. We ran. Um, you were keeping yourselves busy. We ran uh, Iron Crown Enterprises stuff. We ran. Oh, nice! I love Spell Law, and yeah. uh,
1: oh god, Spell <laughs> Law is great, especially the way they. They set up that system for the different spellcasters to have spells. Oh, yeah. And to, to read through the descriptions of some of those spells. I mean, it was just so inspired. And it inspired me as a DM. It was great to see what Iron Crown did with that stuff. We were, and we, it was great to see Iron Crown ads in Dragon Magazine. Oh,
0: yeah, those were great. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We, we Dragon wouldn't like,
1: let anybody advertise. It was so cool. Everything didn't have to be a TSR ad. And I really liked that about what. TSR did at the time. They you, you they had the others time. to come and enjoy the come enjoy the feast <laughs> with us, you know.
0: And I think uh, if I remember right, Tim Cass, uh, I think his editorial policy was, you know, they did reviews on things they liked. They didn't. They didn't. They didn't. Uh, you know, Feed <laughs> up on, on. It was publishers. thanks to
1: ads in that magazine. I discovered Games Workshop, and uh, I discovered, um, what else? Oh. TSR UK when TSR launched the UK branch in the 1980s and all of a sudden you have British content being created for the hobby that was a real wonderful moment for me as a young hobbyist to think that oh wow you know here I am armchair anglophile and now there's cool stuff coming out of England for the hobby that's great you know and then they're doing the choose your own adventure books and then everything's starting to become cool with White Dwarf Magazine becoming another magazine that you can find and read. It didn't just have to be Dragon. It could now be White Dwarf. Right. And that was a fun time. That was a fun time. d d did, well, not d d but TSR itself as a company didn't, didn't expand really beyond the UK. I think they could have. And TSR UK certainly could have uh, lasted longer than it did. But it was great to see it. Happened, even just the fact that it happened was something I'm still grateful for. But I'm sorry, please continue. 1980s, oh, your favorite well, RPG thing?
0: Well, I will say, and probably even though I don't, it's got to be Traveler. So, it's Traveler. Cool. But we also played, I mean, so much. Um, but I'll say probably the the number two. And I think it's because I'm not sure why it is, but I just, we just love Traveler. And, uh, but it wasn't the game that we played the most and it's not the game I ran the most or played the most, but it was definitely, I think that probably probably sits even though I almost never run it or play it, it's still, or even do much reading. It's still probably in my heart, probably my favorite of all the, of all the systems, of all the settings of all the games.
1: It's a great system. And I love it. That feeling when you first muster out, it's unlike any other feeling that, you can get if you're trying to take a rules as written approach with other systems. I love it. Traveler is great. It will always have a place in my heart for sure.
0: Yeah, and I don't think it's with it, doesn't I think on one hand it does have its shortcomings, but on the other hand, you know, I've got the the hardback, uh, where that where they collected the the little black books, put into hardback and add some art. But the fact mm-hmm. is you can look at the breadth of of, I mean, the whole game's there within like hundred, like in one hundred twenty pages or whatever I can write the I counted, but the whole game is there. You you don't need anything else. I mean, I think the the planetary generation system, generation system, could probably it, it's still a little. I think needs more to flesh it out, but in general, it's all there. Space combat, you know, purchasing starships, economics, character creation, right. Yeah, one hundred twenty pages.
1: Lots of elbow room and wiggle room if you want to as a referee, and you want to add some some flavor of your own. You're not you're not going to feel boxed in there, and it's pretty good. It's a great system. I I enjoy it every time I got the chance to play it. Never had the chance to referee it. Always only just experienced a traveler as a player.
0: It's it, yeah, and I think the thing is, is I've ran it, and I've run it under the Hero System. I ran it. Uh, using um, you know, the regular system and some games have been economic games and other games have just not been. But I mean, if you want to get a spreadsheet going, that's your jam. You can you can, do, you can just do trading missions and then have adventures wherever you show up. You know, wow. it's,
1: well, I would love it someday if you, Jeff, were to ever referee even if just a one-off, a traveler adventure at uh, Dale Academy, you let oh. me know if you ever want to do something like that on Zoom.
0: I think, I think we I can think make that I'm happen. Better, I think I'm better about talking about GMing than I am.
1: That's fine. <laughs> it's an open window. You just let me know if you want to call in. I will. Um, I will. But okay, cool. So we've done the 70s so we've done the 80s, and this has been a lot of fun so far. Now I'm going to ask you, Jeff, about the 1990s. What was your favorite RPG thing from that decade?
0: It's got to be the hero system. I would it kind of blends in. I'm going to kind of put that into, uh, I think it be even made it in 2000. There was, a, there was a gap, but the hero system is probably, we played the, a lot of it in the 80s and uh, early 90s um, a lot. Is that were true? No, I think I stopped playing. Actually, I take that back. I stopped playing. Oh, you're a liar. seven. Yeah, so I stopped in 80. So 87 is probably when I stopped. And then I started up again in the 2000s.
1: Oh, okay. So there's a gap that leaves us still with the 1990s for a decade that we need your favorite RPG
0: thing. But I wasn't playing at the time.
1: Okay, but of the stuff that had come out content-wise from publishers during that decade, looking back on it, what do you think... Looking back on it through this lens, what might be your favorite thing
0: that happened during that decade? I would say that I'm not a big fan of, (laughs) "Heresy Alert!" Uh Uh-oh. I don't. I don't think the '90s were a good decade for games. I don't. I. I, Of course, somebody may say, "Well, what about this?" or "What about that?" But I think, in general, I'm going to make a. I'm just going to make this this hot take. I think. The system started turning into, this is not what kept me from playing, but I think systems started turning to a level of complexity that was no longer quite as fun. So I'll include 3.0 in that. I think it it seems like I never really played, but it just seemed like that was the, the hyper crunch was kind of, I think, coming in vogue. And it probably was starting in the late 80s and just kept going. That may be an oversimplification.
1: Okay. I think I know what you mean. There certainly was a good deal of of what I saw as unnecessary expansion. And now all of a sudden, instead of just having to, you know, buy two, three, maybe four books to enjoy the hobby, now you find yourselves wondering if you should buy two, three, four hundred books. Well, you know, I don't think that uh, went over real well with a lot of us. And so I think I get it where you're coming from with that. And but,
0: but in like Vampire the Masquerade, like World of Darkness, I never was into that. And I think that's a, probably a solid system. But that never appealed to me.
1: I get but it. I think, and uh, from a capitalism standpoint, I, I understand why they tried to do it. And I give them credit for, for trying
0: well, they did gave people it, what they wanted, and I think they... And I, and think I
1: suppose they, so. I and
0: suppose I think it was so. important, is they brought a lot of women into the hobby, because they they did right. something beyond just, you know, we're chopping, we're just going and killing stuff, and we're going to also hide behind, you know, mindless levels of statistics and complicated rules, like, no, we're going to have, have very rich storytelling, rich background, yes. but it's also, you know, if you want to get into it, it's very... But if, if you like the a narrative something that's narratively deep you know that's a good way to go but that's but that just didn't you know appeal to me
1: cool all right good so that's the 90s now let's talk about the 2000s I, I think you're gonna say heroes but yes i'm gonna i'll let you say it
0: well yeah it was it was a hero system and that's that was what i loved and when i went back to the hobby i went up picked up fred fifth edition did you ever play uh, the hero system I
1: have never played it and I have still to this day, never even been invited to try it. It's, 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 it's on that particular list of, of systems that, that I wish it wasn't on, but, uh, so no, not yet.
0: Have you played GURPS?
1: Many times. I was a big GURPS guy in the early nineties and, um, We didn't want to play West End game Star Wars for whatever reason, so we used GURPS to play Star Wars. And we didn't see uh, a John Steed and Emma Peel Avengers RPG, so we used GURPS to to do that sort of British classic spycraft stuff. We used GURPS for a lot of stuff, and I, I liked that system because of the way it was so interchangeable with whatever you needed it to be. It was that for you. And I think I'm a, so I, I,
0: I am need to walk stuff back because I, I take this back because I think now you bring that up like West End Games was popular in the 90s and that wasn't a complex system and that was a very popular system the D6 exploding dice it was
1: it was many people still highly regard that old system as the best Star Wars RPG that you could find
0: so I I, I think it's wrong of me to state that it was overcome. I think I think of the explosion of like Palladium books the, and all these other things. I think that's what my mind goes to um, in the complications of pre, pre, 3.0. And I forget there are there were systems out there. You know, I never played them that were simple. And I also realized I embraced the Hero System at the point where it became more complex. <laughs> it, it and that's not the, a bad thing. <laughs> no, but Compl- just, I'm just complexity
1: saying, is okay. From adversity no, I'm becomes saying, strength what and growth and all that.
0: I think I think what I misstated is I look back at what I said. It's like no, that's not true what I stated because I do enjoy the I did enjoy the complexity at at its highest. But it's true that I think in the nineties there was with Fred. I think that was early two thousands that that was the apex of complexity, Um, and then afterwards people started you know in the in the twenty tens started looking at with the uh, with the Indie boom, it started trying to start simplifying things and get to the essence. Yeah. But the hero system, no, it was by far. I loved it, loved it, still love it. But I don't think, you, but you, if you've not played, you played GURPS, I don't know that there's, you're missing anything.
1: Okay, well then if it's if it's akin to GURPS, then I'm sure I would, I would be able to slide right into heroes as if I were putting on a comfortable pair of old slippers
0: yeah I think the only thing that would in my understanding is what people say I can't speak for myself because I've never really played much GURPS is that GURPS tends to handle and I think it's probably true uh is that GURPS handles low level characters better than higher power characters where the hero system tends to be more so the other way from what I've heard but even though fantasy hero was a lot of fun (laughs) and I'm not sure if that's quite true but I think there's less granularity. At lower levels than there are at higher levels, so where, where Gerps is more granular at lower levels, when I understand.
1: I will have to take your word for it, my friend. I have no frame of reference, having never played Heroes, but I certainly um, defer to your <laughs> eternal and infinite wisdom. <laughs> well,
0: yeah, my, yeah, my, but I will say that uh, you—the only really way to be fair the only way you can really effectively run be gm and create characters is you have to get the software to the, the character maker software the javascript uh to do it by hand with or without a spreadsheet is is very time consuming
1: i gotcha sometimes technology is your friend
0: well, it's because of the math behind the character. Chris is point by, and there's so many different ways you can modify it.
1: Right. I know. <laughs> point so, by is fun, though, for what it is.
0: But we played superheroes. We played Traveler. We played um, fantasy. We played, I mean, I ran. Did you get uh, to play Marvel
1: 19- superheroes and also the DC Comics games?
0: No, I, I never played Marvel superheroes, which I'd like to at a convention sometime. The DC, I would like to have. I never played that. I did play uh, shortly a game of Mutants and Masterminds for a few sessions online. Cool. Is that true, Mutants and Masterminds? Yeah, I think so. And uh, But no, it's... Uh, it's That's so a I don't great name those... for a game, by the way. Oh, I agree. Yeah, if you're going to do the alliteration, <laughs> it is probably <laughs> more clever. But anyway, it's a very versatile. I also played a 30s uh, action horror game as well.
1: Oh, nice. Set took, where? Like set in the jungle? Or set in the desert? What?
0: No, it was set in uh, it's like Chicago. But the adventure oh, I ran was okay. the, the cult of the reptile god. Nice. But I turned it into a, a 1930s town in Arkansas. Cool. And only had to change a little bit, and it worked.
1: I like that kind of low-tech adventuring. And um, I'm guessing there was no magic involved with this. It was just very rooted in, in, um, in almost like film noir, I guess, right?
0: No, there was a magic snake at the end.
1: (laughs) Oh, there was magic involved. Okay,
0: (laughs) but the the characters didn't run the magic. It was no, it was definitely it was horror. Uh, It was at the end. It was you know there was a the reptile god was was a giant poison snake and uh or venomous okay. snake.
1: <laughs> I was just about to ask, was it more psychological horror a more slasher horror? Like what kind? But you just answered it right there with the big snake. Yep.
0: Well and the was time they wound up in um they wound up going after some artifacts in the in the uh in the uh in the, uh, in, the Orient, in the Mideast. Um so it it would go all over. It was kind of Indiana Jones. I think of Indiana Jones with horror. I guess it would be like Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones had a horse. So it's kind of like Indiana Jones. except yeah, I like the that car- public feel. But they were called Troubleshooters Incorporated. And the idea was you had something – the concept was somebody had a problem, you'd call Troubleshooters, and mm-hmm. you'd pay them money, and they would they'd take care of your troubles.
1: Hey, there's a big giant snake
0: over here. Let me call (laughs) troubleshooters. Well, (laughs) somebody, somebody, somebody didn't didn't hear from their spouse and or relative or something was going on, and they were paying them a lot of money to go to go investigate. So it worked fairly well. Um, It worked really well for that. Um, And well, but the the cult of the reptile god works so well. That's that's the thing. Is that was it is so easy to reskin that into a modern set like. Unbelievably easy, like, and that was a, a UK module, isn't
1: it? This is N one by Douglas Niles, Cult "Of the Reptile God," right? Yeah. Okay. Um, that uh, that module, I agree, is absolutely fun. Correct me if I'm wrong, but is it is is the big bad in that module Sakata? Or am I confusing that with uh, the rep, uh with the lizard man king? I always get I reptile god and lizard man <laughs> king modules mixed up. I'm so bad. I apologize. Well, I'm uh, I
0: am not. I do not remember my modules, and I'm not. I don't play D anD D very often. Almost never. But um, well, that
1: that breaks my heart to hear you say <laughs> that, Jeff. I would love to see you enjoy D anD
0: bit more often. Well, I just uh, I, I am starting to run an oh. Uh, Old school essentials uh, game for. Uh, it's a, I I just high fantasy. Old is just school not essentials. Much
1: I just I just recently became aware of old school essentials. Like within the past couple of years, this is not. This is not an old corporate entity or whatever you want to say, a company no. that's been around, right? It's been around only recently, right?
0: Yeah, it, my, my understanding is, I'm just going to make a jab, and though people are going to probably say no, but. I would say the last five years or so. You know,
1: Within the last five years. Okay, that's cool. I think Fair it enough. was
0: originally BX Essentials. It originally was what it was called. And I think over the time, he finally just said, you know, it's old school. Did some editing and better than better being. And then he, next thing you know, he's got a $750,000 Kickstarter.
1: Right. Okay, uh, cool. It's good to see that. I like that. I like folks enjoying and taking a look back towards the older ways. There's a lot of a lot of good that can still come from Exploring the roots of our hobby, and it's nice to nourish those roots and not forget about them you know and I think that we're probably ten maybe fifteen years away now from first edition a b, and d becoming a dead language uh, so it's nice to still be able to celebrate it and commemorate it these days right wouldn't you agree
0: oh no i I do agree, and I just it just for myself it just tends to be I do not just like I really don't like high fantasy. I don't even like, I just I prefer my fantasy to be like if if magic is gonna, gonna be um of course I'm gonna I'm gonna you're gonna I'm gonna make a hip um when statement is it's gonna be full of hypocrisy, because I'll I'll tell you why I'm also doing the exact opposite. I just I generally tend to prefer that the magic be very rare and dangerous and scary rather than commonplace. Okay, and the idea I get that, that. You, you can just find a plus one sword here and you know, a potion of healing. I kind of like the idea where it, even with the hero system, the hero system was you you would improve your skills, but um, that's still always around the door because if you were to be dealing with an ogre, he can take you out with one hit, no matter how big of a dude you are you are going to think about how you're going to deal with an ogre where you know with most like the D, &D, it's like there's a point where ogres are more like orcs it's like okay i can take him and that's what i don't like is that level power and it probably has to do more with higher level play
1: and i get that too because uh, you you want things to be a bit more dangerous and uh, and i'm totally cool with that and um i think that no player character should plan on surviving the first three adventure sessions of any adventure whether it's a referee running a module or whether it's an ongoing open campaign that just goes on and on uh three you get three sessions after that grace period you are lucky to have survived
0: well but and- so i would run but, but, but i do appreciate that like with fifth edition i do appreciate that they make make the the scale to Third level easier, uh, quicker, which I think kind of makes sense. But you know, old school essentials is like the opposite. Uh, but I do appreciate with I do appreciate what D and D does, Advanced D and D to fifth edition. I do appreciate what they do. It's just that the progression and the in general the underlying um, background or, or themes. I do enjoy playing. I just don't necessarily always enjoy running.
1: Okay, and that's cool. And so I like appreciate Francis, that. You, you guys are
0: doing like Bar- Expedition to Barrier Peaks. I ran Expedition to Barrier Peaks as a one-shot like a couple years ago, two years ago, three years ago. And fun, I loved it. And you, know, you guys are running, it's like, you know what? I got time, I would love to play in it. I mean, I don't necessarily hate it. I'm not necessarily antithetical to it, but for me to run it uh, as far as a ongoing campaign as a one-shot, you know, yeah, it's fun. I enjoy the high level play. I love spells. I love fireball. Yeah, sure.
1: <laughs> okay. Well, you, you just went ahead and went there, pal, because uh, I'm DMing S3. You DM'd it already. So as from from one S3 DM to another, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions about how you DM'd it. And uh, the first question I'm going to ask is in real time, how many weeks or months or days or what have you did it take for you to run the module as just a one-shot, like you said?
0: Well, What I did is I got a friend to co-GM. Okay. And we had enough people that we could split the party.
1: Oh, okay. How many people?
0: And I think we had about, I don't remember, we may have about six or seven players. Cool. We ran it as fifth edition. Okay, and we played it for like six hours.
1: Did you enjoy it?
0: Oh, it was fun. I think there's, I think, you know, not to. I think there are some definite. There's some things I really don't like about it. Um, like I what? Think, well, I it's think, okay.
1: You can you can tell us. We're among well, friends I just, here, I just right, see that. Everybody.
0: No, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not hesitating because I'm afraid. I'm just trying to 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 collate my my thinking. I think the problem is, in some ways, the ship's too big, and the veggie pygmy level. It's just, I don't know how to describe it. I think there are some things that are just too they're just too large a scale, and you get lost in uh, in a thing that maybe isn't always that interesting. And okay. I think if you're really to play out the veggie pygmies, I mean the amount of veggie pygmies there is going to be astro. I mean it's just it's crazy. And I just think if it were honestly, I think it would it would be served better if the ship was maybe uh, half the size.
1: Okay. Wow. Well, aren't you glad you got that off your chest?
0: <laughs> yeah. Now dice right. logos, he did. Now, what
1: did you love about S3?
0: Oh, I it's, it's cuz it's Gonzo. Um and I think it's the okay, it is as far as just a um as far as just a module just a, as a concept, I think the idea was I think adding I think adding science elements are fun. And I think adding elements that are science that people can relate to is fun. But I think the um <clears throat> I think the um I just think the weird science stuff was the fun stuff. So like the robots, you had robots acting differently. You had the robot police. Mm -hmm. I think the key card stuff, I don't know, Uh, probably could be better implemented. Um, I think, I think having the concept of what happened, the storyline was great. Um, I, I think, you know, we had one party got ejected by the, one party one, one of the groups got ejected by the um by the robots in the in the uh dock and another group um you know got eaten by the frog Hemoth.
1: oh no <laughs> spoiler alert for those of you out there who are players in my s3 campaign okay i'm sorry well, Go well, ahead. He,
0: well if you look at the if you look at the cover if you look That's at the okay. cover it's a giveaway i believe maybe not but anyway i think i think even the gotcha stuff was fun. Uh, mm-hmm. They didn't, but they could see some of the gotcha stuff a mile away.
1: Right. It, Especially the more seasoned players.
0: I, but, yeah, uh, I would but, say, but they
1: understand, though. They get it.
0: I would say <laughs> so, what was funny was the reason why the one group died is because the other group lied to the other <laughs>
1: group. Oh, no. <laughs>
0: It was all good. Everybody was fine. They were all friends, so, <laughs> you know. <laughs> wow.
1: <Well, And, laughs> it's a fun adventure. I'm glad it exists. I know people don't like it. I get why they don't like it. But I also know there are some people who like it, and I happen to be one of those people, and I'm glad yeah, to be one of those people.
0: I think if – I I just think it would – it would be interesting to see what Goodman – if I were – well, I should say that. That's a little strong. I think if I were really interested in doing it again, I would probably buy the Goodman Games. That's cool. I think, I think they look,
1: do some good stuff, Goodman Games.
0: And then I would look at what they did with the fifth edition. Cool. And see if you need, if if this changes, if whatever they did change-wise, if that would make sense to it, look at those. I might, I'd be interested in how they handle certain things, but No, it's a fun adventure. There is nobody who's going to play this, run through this. It's not going to have fun.
1: I agree. And I am having a blast DMing it. We started DMing it in March of 2020. And now it's coming up on more than two years of of running S3 continuously from the beginning. Um,
0: I I think, you know, if I were to... If I were to um, let's say I was to be able to buy this the, the initial property, buy everything from from uh, which is the coast, either I would flesh out it more, like rather than reducing the number of say veggie pygmies I maybe would I would either reduce the the size by a half or by two thirds or by a third, shrink it a third. Or I would take what it is, expand it out, and then give a um, and then give and then treat it instead of as being like a one shot or you know or a you know this is what we're gonna do and we're done, is to then have it be more of a living type dungeon and give more guidelines and hooks for the same like this thing will never go away and people continually going in there and what that would mean.
1: Well, I've got good news for you, Jeff.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: the, The good news is that you, my friend, do not need to buy Wizards of the Coast to make that happen. You can, as a referee, make all of those changes yourself and enjoy it and experience it yourself. And that's, I think, the part of the beauty of it, too, is that Dungeon Masters have the freedom to add their own creativity to comes in the module and um so i think it's great that you would oh. love to do different things with the ship and not just run it word for word and i think all dungeon masters and referees game masters should be also feeling as if they have the freedom to do the same too but not
0: oh i don't feel i don't have the freedom to i'm just saying is i just want to pay somebody to do it for me.
1: I know. know? (laughs) I know. know. And I was just sharing good news with you. That's
0: all. (laughs) It's not because I I lack the uh I I just don't I I, the other thing I find is adventure writing is a tricky thing. And especially when dealing with that. But boy, it would be fun to get some high powered individuals and say, you know what, this is this is going to be a thicker thing and we're going to throw this out and this is a campaign and this is what it means. Uh maybe play out the factors a little bit more. But and the other thing nice about, I think, is probably like all, we'll call it a mega dungeon, is that there's just a, um, you can run multiple times and it'll be different. There's things that movies players never came, you know, obviously like with most adventures, there's just things that they never even came close to coming across that are, you know, fun and interesting. And everybody had a great experience. It's just. Uh, yeah.
1: I never, it, it never occurred to me that I should turn the spaceship in s3 into a a mega dungeon where if player characters get down to the lower level of the ship and then they get all the way down to the lowest level what happens then the module doesn't take it any further but as a referee you sure as hell can so what you can do is have there be another another set of levels below the existing levels of the spaceship and just repeat the same levels from the module again. The players will be none the wiser. And you can easily turn S3 into the ultimate megadungeon experience that never ends and i'm not saying that you should because this yeah. isn't this isn't great advice mind you because uh, you will lose well, friends you will lose everything uh, you will lose sleep uh, so don't do that please but you could if you wanted to and i'm i'm glad that you can i suppose but it never occurred to me that i should and i'm well, glad the, that i the
0: problem's going to be is not if we not give spoilers away but there are there are vast quantities of certain kinds of of weapons that people can eventually gain yes, that you can correct. disrupt kingdoms with.
1: <laughs> correct, correct. And and uh, and I'm all about chaos, and I'm all about the Gonzo approach, and we do have. We do have old school Wild West six shooters in our d d world. These things exist and we're, we're, we're DMing. Well, I'm DMing S3. So science fiction exists and it's all okay to have that stuff. Now you wouldn't want player characters to be running around with laser rifles and a backpack filled with ammunition so that they're really never going to run out of ammo. You don't want that of course, but, um, as a DM, do I mind that they have maybe one or two rounds that they can fire off of, off of one of these things and then that's it? They have no more power from the battery packs that you need for the weapons? Then I'm okay with that, Yep, I think. But they're going to have to work for that. They're going to have to really go and find that stuff. You don't really but- find it on level one. You got to go exploring a little bit deeper. Again, spoiler alert, sorry, folks, if you're playing S3 and I'm your DM right now. Pretend you didn't hear me say that. Anyway, Jeff, as you were.
0: (laughs) Well, I'm also wondering too. It's like, um, because you do, like, say you could. This is nation changing. uh, But the other thing is too is, uh, you know, the thing I've wondered about the legalities of it, or maybe not the legalities of it, but the other thing I started thinking about too. It's like, you, there's no reason a person. I'm wondering, from a just from my business standpoint. You could publish um, your own adventure of S three, and I wonder if you just publish it in a way that you're not referencing S three. But the idea is you're not even putting that map on there. But the understanding of whatever adventure is D D adventure that you're going to use existing maps. Okay, sure, I wonder I how that, that would fly. I, w- I wonder how that fly if you could rewrite like the Sinister Secret of Salt Marsh. I I don't know if there's a way of doing that or or the legalities of that.
1: You mean rewrite it as an adventure module for publication? Yeah. Okay. I think that you should, first of all, speak to your lawyer (laughs) and run it by him because I'm no expert um it really should <laughs> and if you if you know somebody in publishing speak with them too just ask them you know it's oh, well a good yeah question. i'm not
0: going to do this but i just kind of wonder it's like you have the map. it's a,
1: it's a good discussion to have
0: and you can tell like, i keep on the borderlands but if you never call it keep on the borderlands I, but I don't know how you would tie it in people's minds it's like i used to I wonder if you could,
1: don't know i wonder
0: and i also wonder names
1: yeah. and
0: I, I was wondering too like what if you wanted to do a star wars adventure But you did Microsoft Word, and then all you did was you renamed every race, every name, and then you maybe have a separate – you just tell people this is the find and replace. And people go and find and replace, print it out, and there you go.
1: My first thought is that people would greet such a publication with scorn, frowning upon it as as if it were something (laughs) – so transparently derivative that it has no value whatsoever. That's my first initial thought. But my second initial thought is, you know, if I were to overestimate the intelligence of the average person, I'd be making a big mistake, wouldn't I? And so
0: well, if you my want Star Wars thought, content, you want it printed. Um, right. But of course, it would re- require somebody to go through the extra work. That's the problem. Most people aren't going to want to do that.
1: Right. And as far as you knowing that it's a ripoff of Star Wars with the with the serial number filed off, then you're going to keep that as a secret to yourself, right? You're not going to say to your publisher, oh, by the way, here's what I did. I hope you don't mind. Right?
0: Right. No, this is something I'm not actually but it's just a thought experiment. I wonder, I just the idea is could a person do that? I that's what I wonder. that would it be okay. viable?
1: I, I can answer that. The answer is yes, a person could do that. And now what the consequences <laughs> might be of the person doing that, well we'll find yeah. out, won't we?
0: So does so does Disney have lawyers? Is that do you think they have
1: lawyers? <laughs> uh well, you got it, you got an idea that you want to pitch? Oh. Uh go for it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. No. No, listen, it wouldn't be the worst idea in the world, believe
0: me. Well, unless I wind up in jail, then my wife would think so.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, I don't know if that's a felony even. It might just be a misdemeanor. Who knows? (laughs) You might get off with a slap on the wrist because you're a first-time offender. Who knows?
0: You know, there is a theory that, you know, all possible realities exist. It's too bad we just can't peek at a few of (laughs) those. Right. So how does it work? How would it work for Jeff on Earth (laughs) 7718?
1: Oh, God, don't get me started on Earth numbers. I recently saw that I was reading, uh, what was it, Marvel Zombies, right? And at some point, uh, I just for the hell of it decided to go and look at the Wikipedia page for Marvel Zombies. And it says, Marvel Zombies is set on Earth 22614, something like that. And I'm like, geez. (laughs) <laughs> Got enough Earths there, Marvel? I don't think DC has that many Earths. I know they have Earth 1 and Earth 2. I know there's an Earth X. I know there's maybe, I don't know, two or three others, but that's it. Meanwhile, Marvel is just like, boom, and they're calling the, the current Earth, Earth number 616 in their continuity. It's considered the 616, which begs the question, well, what happened to the first one through 615 Earths? What's what's the deal there? It's like that age-old question: Why did Atari call the Atari Twenty Six Hundred the Atari Twenty Six Hundred? Why didn't they call it the Atari Two Thousand, or why not the Atari Twenty Six Hundred One? You wonder. Who knows? Who knows why? It's probably just an arbitrary choosing of a number by random, as far as I can guess. Who knows? I wouldn't know. What what would you think is the reason for why they? We're calling Earth 616, Earth 616. And why are they calling Atari 2600, Atari 2600? Well,
0: 616 is a reason. I forget what it is. And I I wasn't interested enough to remember. But there is a very specific reason at 616.
1: Okay. I am oblivious to it. Perhaps I'll find the reason someday. Until then, it shall remain a mystery.
0: Yeah. Ah, sweet mystery of life. Yeah, I'm not a current collector. I But what I have done is I've subscribed to Marvel Limited, so I've been kind of, you know, picking and choosing, going back. Okay. Uh, So a lot of stuff I've missed out on, and so I don't know.
1: I like to go back and reread a lot of the old classics. Or for me, anyway, they're classics. Uh, But I also dabble in the newer stuff sometimes.
0: Oh, I do too. Uh, In fact, I find some of the new stuff, like, really, really good. Like Have you read The Immortal Hulk?
1: Immortal Hulk is one of the titles that was recommended to me. That's written by Jeff Lemire, I think. Uh, or at least uh, it was know. in the early issues. And I'm a fan of Lemire's writing. I really enjoy his Black Hammer series of comics. But Immortal Hulk, I've heard about the premise and how it involves all of a sudden there's a new Hulk in the Marvel Universe, and here he is. And he's very different from, from what you expect, from what from what one might expect. And I have not yet picked it up, but I've been so tempted over the last year to pick up the first trade and at least experience the first five or six issues of it, you know, see how it treats me. And then if I want to grab volume two, I'll go and grab volume two. They're easily found and Amazon has it. The local shops have it. They're never out of stock. It seems pretty popular. What is it about Immortal Hulk that you like though, Jeff?
0: Oh, have you, are you familiar with
1: Bernie Wrightson? What's that?
0: Bernie Wrightson. Oh, Bernie
1: Wrightson, the artist. Yeah. Oh, he does the penciling, right?
0: No, but this is very Bernie Wrightson-esque. Oh, so it's, a, it's
1: evocative of the Wrightson style.
0: Okay. oh, yeah. it's who's not, doing the art?
1: Is it Is it Kelly Jones or one of the other artists? who's who's I doing don't that? remember
0: the artists. i'm I'm beyond. I'm just a I'm just a dabbler now. but the okay. the premise is that gamma radiation isn't a science thing. It's almost an evil I don't know how to describe it. It is very
1: supernatural thing,
0: yes, and it's it is a weird, horror, twisty almost makes me think of early like a swamp thing
1: yeah and it's it's dark it's darker than what you would think the hulk comic would be right
0: yes but in terms of tone it's not dark as in just it is it is more like i don't know how to describe it but it's it is the the story the do you find that it's
1: easier to do you find that it's easy to care about are there characters in addition to the Hulk in this particular talent it, it of is, the Hulk?
0: It is a treatment. I don't want to give anything away. It well, is you a,
1: can give a little something away. It's cool. The it's
0: invulnerability, right. you know how Hulk has this invulnerability? Right. It's treated completely different in a different way.
1: What is Hulk, what is Immortal Hulk vulnerable to?
0: No, it's, it's not that. It's not like things just bounce off of <laughs> them. I don't want to give it away because I know I a, get
1: it. That's okay.
0: There's shock. There's shock involved. You look at this, okay. and you'll be like, what? <laughs> and you'll be like, well, in a, a spoiler
1: free way, tell us a bit more about that the shock element.
0: Yeah, it's it is it is weird. We'll just say. We'll say it involves body horror.
1: Okay, just being vague. And we, we can let him off the hook for this one. It's okay. Because people because do have what? a hang up about if, spoilers. If I, if I, I know. No, it's not. It's it
0: so it, 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 have you ever watched have you ever watched Alias?
1: I have not yet seen Alias, but I do know that the folks who were involved on the production side of it for the television series are well-respected and highly regarded by critics.
0: If you watch that very first episode, it is insanely good. It, it holds up to any movie. But if you watch- The, the pilot any,
1: episode is that good?
0: It is that good. You could just stop there.
1: Where can I and find it? it? On streaming service? What streaming Netflix. service carries Net, areas? Netf- Netflix. Netflix.
0: Okay. At least okay. it used to. But if you watch anything after that, you will not be able to watch. If you say, you know what, you just happen to watch something later. Yeah. You cannot go back to that. You cannot go back to that first episode and feel the same way. Why? Because now you have knowledge and as you're watching things unravel and it is a very much, there is things that they do that are very shocking and it's not shocking after you see it and that's that's the point it's like sometimes you if somebody hints it there is a certain amount of for so for me uh for me in general i i'm very it is very rare for me to be genuinely shocked at at watching a movie or a tv series it doesn't happen very often but when it does happen
1: is that I, because as a youngster you were exposed to a lot of it
0: uh, no, I think I'm analytical, so I'm not. Well, so when you watch TV, you watch movies. Do you just enjoy the experience and just kind of turn off the brain and say, you know what, I'm on an emotional ride, and I'm not going to. Or are you the type of person that starts thinking about it as you're watching it? I am
1: someone whose favorite film of all time is Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Okay, and I am. Very, prone to becoming emotionally attached to the story and the characters and the narrative um however, if I am going to watch uh, a Schwarzenegger or a Stallone shoot' em up or whatever <laughs> I I'm gonna understand that it's time to just turn off the brain and put on the popcorn and have a good time so I can I can be versatile there um. And, well, I
0: think and I, every, I can too. Be. It, it, you know, for a genre, I can be, but I will say in general, most things I can see coming. It's okay. just because because most people follow certain tropes.
1: But hey, maybe you were a, a a private eye in a previous life or something. <laughs> no, you know,
0: no, no, it's just like it's just a for, it's, things are formulaic. Things are just very formulaic. It's like a lot of times you could you can see a movie, you are like, okay. This person's going to die. It's kind of like, right. like Chekhov's, it's like Chekhov's you. gun. You know, you show the, it, you show the gun by the, in the first act, it's got to go off by the third. I mean, there's things like that. You're like, okay, this is your, your leading up to this. I can, I can put the things together. But there are certain shows, certain movies that, that happen. And Immortal Hulk is one, because I think what was nice is it defied my expectations. And it threw me off and I was shocked. And in their stuff they did, I'm like, that is the most gruesome thing that I can imagine. You just did it. And I can't believe you just did that.
1: And now I'm wondering if I should read this or not, because it might scare me and give me sleepless nights. What because, are you doing no, to me, Jeff?
0: No, it's very much Bernie Wrightson, early Swamp Things in the 70s, where it was just weird stuff. It's just, it just weird. It is like creepy comics, weird uh. uh in the storyline, it is it is it is different. It's the most different thing that I've seen. It was the most. It's very. They they did some very fun things with it, and it is a very, very very fun experience. And
1: <laughs> it's nice to see Marvel Comics taking a chance on something like that, right? Because it, they they could just speed food. I'm sorry, I said the word wrong. They could just spoon feed everybody the classic traditional Hulk like like we know him. Uh, but yet they're giving us something that's that's a, a sort of a sort of an inside out, upside down version of what we're all expecting, and so maybe they're testing us. Maybe Marvel Comics is testing the readers of all Marvel Comics with uh, with the Hulk as an experiment to see how well readers respond to that big of a shakeup, and if it. And if it continues to be very successful, as I think it already has been, then perhaps we're going to see them taking more and more chances on things like that within mainstream current continuity. And I know current continuity is a big deal for some readers and for others it's really not, and I remember when I was a much younger man. Continuity was a much bigger deal uh, but now that I'm an older man and I've already lived through the the flashpoints and the the crisis and the rebirth and everything else i've i I've been through it and so you 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 become numb to it after a while oh a relaunch great oh a reboot great okay um we're gonna publish uncanny x-men number one okay cool um you know all of a sudden it's right back to to the circle is complete and i don't mind it bothered me when i was a much younger man but i have perspective now i'm i'm closer to 70 than i am to 30 and that that changes the way you see things i just appreciate the medium
0: so much i love it it's the telling a good story. I don't care. I think the point is in my I'm I was like you, but I think there's a point where after decades, you get yourself caught to a point where it's like, okay, how many times can we have the X Men fighting Magneto? I mean, it just yeah, you got to try something different. And you and you I do. think also and I know and also I think too is I before I think I was a bigger fan of like you know don't change genders don't change the uh the races of characters but now i'm like now yeah, i'm all for that <laughs> check it out this i was never Bend against it. avengers <laughs> like- i was
1: never against it i saw marvel turn thor into a lady i saw yeah. marvel turn punisher into a lady and now they just turned electra into the new daredevil have you seen what they've done
0: no no
1: they they keep doing these these wonderful things where they um they they involve their the female characters and, and they're giving they're giving them new life and serving them up to the readers with new iterations of, of them and yeah. giving you things that you wouldn't expect. Um, although well, nowadays I guess you should expect it at this point, but it still is unexpected and still nice to see.
0: Well, at the Peggy Carter uh the the short they did on uh, Disney Plus, the cartoon.
1: I saw that they they did what if the cartoon version. Yeah, and they they made Peggy Carter uh, uh, a sort of uh, Captain America, which which was which was fun, and that's that's what Marvel Comics has a, a cool history of going back to the 1970s when they first started doing what if and I, I always enjoyed the what if comics some of them were a little too cheesy for me right. but, but most but most were okay and some were think, even
0: great but, but right now I want I want a, I want a Peggy Carter movie
1: <laughs> you do
0: yes I want, well what I, do you, you know, so
1: what are you going to do about that
0: what am I going to do about it? I'm going to write to my congressman,
1: <laughs> and then you'll feel much better about yourself afterwards <laughs> I promise
0: and it, but, it, and, you know, and the thing is, like, with the changing of uh, Thor to, to Jane, um, right. Jane, what's her name? Jane.
1: I forget? Huh? Yep. Uh, yeah, her name was Jane. <clears throat> Jane Foster. Jane Foster,
0: correct. So they, they added a cancer story to the thing and gave, it's not just like, okay, we need to make Thor, but make Thor a girl or woman. They said, we're going to take Thor and we're going to uh, you know, give it over to Jane Foster, but create a very interesting, different plot line or backstory for her and make it like it's not like just rehashing Thor. It's like you're taking this from a completely different perspective and, and kind of adds freshness to the character of Thor itself by adding a whole lot more um, new ways of, of looking at the character, which I think is a lot more, it's, it's refreshing, really.
1: It is refreshing. All of a sudden, now you have depth that wasn't there before the retconning. I love retconning. And my favorite retconning um, that Marvel did was when they introduced this character uh, about 15 years ago in the Avengers series written by Bendis. The character's name was the Century all of a sudden, here is the sentry, and he's joining the Avengers, and everybody's like, well, who the hell is the sentry? Then they start to show you who the sentry is and why nobody seems to remember him. And then one by one, they start to remember who he is. And it's great. You're peeling back the layers of an onion and getting into deeper and deeper stuff with, with what you've already been so familiar with already for years. That's a great, Very clever, almost genius. Well, we can go ahead and call it genius. Why not? That's a genius way to help comic books remain relevant because readers are discovering things about these characters and these old plot lines that they had no idea about and the impact that they are having. So, not to get all echo chamber on you, my friend, but you are absolutely right about that. And I think that retconning is cool. I've seen folks frown upon it, downplay it, marginalize it, what have you, but I think it's cool and I'm glad that it exists. And I'm already waiting to see what the next big retcon is going to be. Um, We recently had a big reveal in Marvel Comics that you might have missed. I know you're only a dabbler, but you'll enjoy knowing that the Watcher who lives on the moon is now Nick Fury and has been for a couple of years. Did you know that?
0: Yeah, in fact, it was, I think it was, so who went, so who went through the black, I'm trying to think which one I read. There was a black, oh, it was machine, I read, was reading a machine man. It was a machine, machine man. It was a machine man. It was what if, there, he, he basically, his dad died and he was kind of confused and there was this big black obelisk and he walks through that black obelisk and, It strips away all of his things and he's forced to become the, oh, no, that's a different one. The Nick Fury, somebody was on the moon seeing him. But I've also seen one where he was dead and the machine man was becoming the watcher. But the Nick Fury one, there was another one. Yeah, I can't remember. I read something and I remember him being on there.
1: Yeah, it's a weird thing that nobody saw coming. And I bet not even you, my friend, with your powers of deductive reasoning (laughs) and your ability to see plot twists coming from three kilometers away. You did not see Nick Fury turning into the Watcher. I know I certainly didn't. I don't think any of us did.
0: Oh, I I know what confused me. What I'm thinking about was there was another comic book that was showing an alternate post-apocalyptic Earth. And in that one the machine man became the watcher on the moon, but I did see where another one where Mick Fury was the watcher on the moon And was he, is he chained? I can't remember. Was he chained? Yeah, no. I can't remember. Does he move freely or is he, It was he, was he chained? He's moving,
1: he's, no, he's not chained. <clears throat> he's moving freely around. And that's only from within the last, that's only from within the past five years that this happened. And, um, but, and still today, Marvel is writing that, Nick Fury as Watcher train. And I have no idea where that's going to go. You can't tell me that that's the end of the line. I'm sure something huge is going to happen with that at some point in in the not-too-distant future. But Marvel does so very little with The Watcher anyway, which is strange to me. I know he was a big part in the What If comics. The Watcher was always your narrator, and he was the fellow who would lead you through the stories. And with what Disney Plus is doing, they got this wonderful voice actor to do the voice of the Watcher for for that series. Uh, I forget forget his name. Shame on me. But it was perfect casting for the voice of the Watcher. And now we're going to see, I guess, what Marvel Comics does next. Who the hell knows with with the way they've been going lately. And they they might have the Immortal Hulk eventually at some point become The Watcher, and, <clears throat> and neither yourself nor myself <laughs> would, would would be able to say that we saw that coming.
0: Yeah, and I will say for comic books, I will say I'm less likely to see I saw that coming. It's more with movies, and those are the ones that are in TV shows. Those are the ones that I think play to a formula more often than not.
1: I've recently been re-watching the series Lost, the old <clears throat> ABC series. I've never
0: and,
1: seen it. Okay, it's next year uh, it's it's coming up on its 20th anniversary year. So I figured, well, why not rewatch it? What the hell? <laughs> so I started rewatching the first couple of seasons and I'm seeing twists that I that I obviously knew about once upon a time because I saw it years ago, but now it all seems so fresh and new to me. It's wonderful that I don't see a lot of the surprises coming. I'm enjoying that. I was expecting well, it to be more predictable, I, but it's not. I
0: think it's going to be like Battlestar Galactica, if I remember correctly. Did you watch Battlestar Galactica?
1: Uh, yes, I did. And I also did a rewatch of that a few years later, too. So I went through that. And so I got to see what it was like uh, with when the surprises happened and the reveals happened and and all of that. and. Things things caught me by surprise even during the second time around. Did that but happen I, that, to you?
0: Well, I no, I didn't watch the second time around because I my feeling with, with watching star Galactica is those twists and turns were not leading to anything. They were just throwing stuff in and be throwing stuff in there. Because when they at the end tried to tie stuff up, they would just drop stuff that was major lead in major things. And they would just drop it. I'm like, this was major two episodes ago. Now you're acting like it never happened. <clears throat> and I realized at the end, they didn't know what they're doing. And my I lost. I think they just thrown stuff in to be throwing stuff in. It wasn't to create a cohesive ending. It was just like, at the end, they're like, well, we got to put this together, tie it up somehow. And it was, Damn, like, right. Battle, Battlestar Galactica was not satisfying.
1: Practice. It was messy. <laughs> and, I, and I can totally see Jeff sitting there thinking to himself, okay, where's the payoff? <laughs> um, <laughs> Not finding the payoff.
0: The payoff Um, was a kick in the nuts. That's what the payoff was. (laughs) I was better uh, off not seeing this. I wish this never existed. I wish I wished it had died after season three or two. I just wish it would have been unfinished and it would have been perfect in our minds.
1: (laughs) If you could time travel and go back to then and watch a different television show instead of Battlestar Galactica hoping to maybe scratch your sci-fi itch somehow, what show would you have chosen instead?
0: I don't know. And I think the thing is back then, it was less than it was. It, there's less choices there is now. So it's hard to say.
1: Yeah, it's not an easy question. I get you. Um, do, do, I don't I regret.
0: I guess I don't science, really regret. Oh, the special effects were cool, at least. The uh, actors the, the were the great. The costumes were cool, at least. It was, I think the first two seasons were super excellent. Yeah. I think the premise was great. I think all the actors were great. I just think it's, do you ever watch Heroes?
1: I love Heroes. In fact, I just started um, deciding that I was going to rewatch Heroes this year. So I'm going to hold these up on screen here. You can probably oh, yeah. see. I, I just pulled s- these off my shelf. I'm going to rewatch these.
0: Season one, I think, was perfect. I think season two was pretty good, except to the end. And season three, it's like, I don't know what you're going to
1: like, <laughs> Well, if you ever decide you want to wa- uh, rewatch season one, just for the hell of it. I'll, I'll totally buddy system it with you. <laughs> and we can compare fun notes along the way. That would be cool. Like,
0: char- I
1: characters I like most from that show are the, the, the strong female leads, the blondes, Nikki, and mm. the cheerleader.
0: Say the cheerleader, and, save the world
1: right. I love those two characters and the the portrayal of them by those actresses i I thought that was perfect casting <clears throat> and um I love some of the other characters in that show too and the the premise behind it um is very Straczynski and rising stars but i I really like the the, the concept of a small amount of humans being born with superpowers in a very short amount of time, and then you see what happens with their story. It's a little bit like watching the X Men, in the sense that here are all these gifted youngsters. And uh, but uh, with heroes, there's no there's no Professor Charles Xavier type figure. With heroes, they're just all on their own, for good or ill exploring their own pathways and whatever happens happens and discovering the limits of their own powers just discovering their powers really and to see what the cheerleader goes through with how she mutilates herself <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> is mind-blowing and to look back and think wow hey wait a second this was on major mainstream network television i would think that that's sort of gritty, edgy stuff would have been more suited for cable television. Um, But here it was, right in your face.
0: But but it was genius the way they did it, because it was funny. It was both icky and funny at the same time.
1: (laughs) Yep, and that character, Hiro, from Japan, who had all of those scenes, a lot of those scenes took place with him in Japan, and there was Japanese language being spoken. And they would give you English subtitles. And I love that as as someone with severe hearing loss to have that, I've always enjoyed subtitles and to see that they would incorporate that into the show. Also, I thought was a courageous move. Here they are exposing people to a bit of of Oriental culture and which is something that you don't see at most shows. And so it was nice to see that. I think Heroes is great on a lot of levels. And I like how that one character with the superpower to draw comic books that turn into reality and to shape events just by what he could do with a paintbrush. Uh, that, to me, is, is one of my all-time dream powers. I guess if you ask me, like, what's one superpower do I wish I could have, I would think that it would be that one. And I think that that would be instantly using it for the power of good, I think, I would hope. I know that they say that absolute power corrupts absolutely. I think it was Benjamin Franklin maybe who said that, but I am going to say that i would go into it with the very best of intentions i promise and <laughs> I, would, I would make sure to paint all sorts of cool stuff for not just me to enjoy but for jeff to enjoy too
0: okay then you got my vote you got my vote
1: <laughs> yeah i would even paint expedition to the barrier peaks adventure modules that contain all of that cool extra stuff that jeff was talking about earlier oh yes i would um, but yeah, I love Heroes. Great show. I'm glad you brought it up. I'm yeah, doing a rewatch I, of Lost and Heroes this year. Those are going to be my two.
0: It's the, after the writer's strike, It's it, some people complain about the hero being sitting too long in Japan, but I enjoyed that. I enjoyed it up until about the end. I think the problem... People the are problems, always going to whine. But the problem I had with it was more the the horn rim glasses guy the ambiguity of him in the first season was perfect. It's just that they would keep switching good guy, bad guy, good guy, bad guy and then I think he was Skyler they just didn't know what to do with him. They kept I just think they lost their way. They really just lost their way. But that first season is absolutely perfect. There is no if, ands, or buts. That is probably one of the best seasons of TV. Enjoyable fun. Superhero TV out there.
1: I love the casting for the character, Skylar. No, cool. he was great. He was. He was that was my first introduction to him as an actor. Prior to Heroes, I didn't know who he was, and then I started to see him in different things as the years went along, and I still enjoy seeing him pop up today. He's pretty cool, wouldn't you agree?
0: I would agree. Um, even though, I, like, I think everything he's been in, the things that, again, I think with the, he's been in that I have not liked as well, it hasn't had anything to do with him or his acting ability. I just i I wasn't like you know now we're going down the the full rambling, like like the Star trek I enjoy I enjoy the Star Trek reboots to a certain point, but there's mm-hmm. just certain things that just like I find unfathomable but but the actor is great, and the and it's just
1: it's as uh, siler, he was phenomenal yeah, I don't think that they could have cast a better actor for that
0: it's Spock, he's perfect as Spock.
1: Yeah, and he's really good. Uh, Spock, I have to admit. I'm glad that it was recently announced that Chris Pine and everybody is getting together to make another one of those films. And, um, you know, I don't drive myself nuts wondering where it fits into continuity, but I do appreciate it for for what it is. And um, I'll probably be one of those folks who sees it. I still think that Star Trek Into Darkness, uh, where you have... Benedict cumberbatch as the the i don't want to say villain God! but we'll, we'll we'll call him the anti-hero okay um i think that was genius casting as con right um well he, i think we can we, we, we can, can, we can call him it. that but then he's really be good. he's con wink smile you know quotation marks um but yeah, that was a great film. Special effects phenomenal. Production values phenomenal. Yeah, Set design, costumes, everything—very enjoyable.
0: I, um, I I can see it was a wild ride. I just it's just it it was I it just didn't hit my it just didn't trigger for me. But that's fine. I'm mean, not I'm not gonna no yuck or yum. But, uh, just, but like,
1: there's a wonderful part of Star Trek Into Darkness that happens before you even see the opening title screen. They go through this they're running through this primitive jungle world and the enterprise is underwater and you have Kirk and McCoy running through the jungle, trying to escape this primitive tribe, right? Like Indiana (laughs) Jones. Right. Like Indiana Jones. And they're, they're trying their best not to disobey the prime directive and reveal the ship to these primitive people, because you're not supposed to do that, you know, butterfly effect and all that. So um, they're they're having this conflict about whether or not to reveal themselves, and they arrive at the conclusion that the only way to get off of that planet is they're going to have to reveal themselves to these primitive tribes. There's no other way around it. Spock is on that volcano, and he's going to die unless they beam him back to ship and get off the planet. And the only way to do all that is to say, you know, hi, prehistoric people, look at what we have. You know, uh, there's there's just no way around it, and. And then all of a sudden, as a viewer of the film, I'm wondering, okay, they just violated one of the prime directives in a major way. We get it. They were already conflicted about whether or not they should do that. They chose to do that because they wanted to save themselves and they wanted to save Spock. So ask yourself this question, Jeff, did did they really satisfy the needs of the many or did they satisfy the needs of the few and which outweighs which here it becomes a moral question doesn't it
0: well i think it really comes down to is there are very strict rules uh for the uh for the federation and kirk breaks them and that's really what's about
1: so what's the lesson (laughs) is the lesson that it's okay to break rules
0: well, yes. That, that's what Kirk does. He breaks the okay. rules. He, he, okay. he cheats his way to success.
1: Okay. It.
0: Yeah. That's a very from, good way of putting it.
1: That's a very good way of putting it.
0: From the Moria, whatever the, Teriyoshi Maru, or whatever that's called. I mean, he's, he he won by cheating. But by cheating, he showed demonstrated uh, that he was able to think on a different level.
1: Isn't it weird to think about Star Trek as 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 a franchise that glorifies cheating and breaking <laughs> rules and lying, think about that for a second, and then snap back to reality and question everything.
0: It's like, it's it's it's. I think for what it is, it's just you know I I don't get caught up in the in the in the thinking. I just think it's kind of I understand what they're doing, and I think that's why I enjoy the original. I never cared much for the later series at all. But I you just- like the I, original I, series. I do I, I think the chemistry the I think the chemistry between three characters they made it work I think they this, did yeah
1: the, the the first original season gives you everything you need. it even gives you all the colors you need, yeah. because think about the colors that they're wearing on board that ship. they're wearing red, yellow, and blue. What are they? Those are the primary colors from those three colors, you can make every other color you can think of it's a nice little. I want to say almost subliminal thing to let you know that hey we're giving you everything that you need. You're finding it all right here. You don't need anything else. <laughs> yeah. Yet they went on to give us the next generation which I didn't care much for. I didn't feel like Picard was the maverick, that Kirk was, and I wanted that quality in in my starship captain. And if I'm not going to get it from Picard, <clears throat> what else am I going to get from Picard? I'm going to get stoicism okay stoicism is cool i'm gonna get uh wisdom he's older and wiser okay i get that that's cool but is that what i'm really looking for here no so the next generation didn't become my star trek um plus i was also you know very satisfied with the original i didn't feel like i needed anything else and i think that's why i like the the chris pine star trek some of my friends call it Pine Trek. Okay, uh, that's why I like the Pine Trek so much, I think. It's because it it parrots the original while still being something different and giving me Beastie Boys music and all yeah. of the stuff that makes it feel new. It does, it feels nice and new. And I like that. Plus it's the old, it's the same old thing. Yes, Carl Urban does Dr. McCoy maybe a little too perfectly. I don't mind it hey, listen, perfection is great. And if you're going to strive for it, go for it. And if that's what this film wants to do, then okay, fine. Um, I'm okay with it. It's, It's just like the original to me, and I like it. I can do without the third one, Star Trek Beyond. I don't know if I dig that one so much. Although it was fun seeing Chris Pine ride around on a motorcycle as Captain Kirk. That was fun. That was my big Takeaway from the third film they did, and now it looks like we're getting a fourth one, which I'm pretty excited about. I don't know what they're doing. Where they're uh, yeah, I will, to take it.
0: I'll watch it. I just probably will, probably won't watch it in the theater. But uh... well, you and
1: I should compare notes uh, about it afterwards. <laughs> See what we think. We can do RPG ramblings, the uh, the Pine Trek <laughs> edition. No, just kidding. Um, but anyway, getting back over to um, RPGs, you may have seen what's happening at Benchleydale Academy. Yeah, that's what I was going to tell lately. you, we're getting
0: close to the the time space. We haven't really talked about really what exactly is. Why don't you start from the beginning as far as Benchleydale, the origin. The origin well, what, issue, what is Benchleydale?
1: What do you think it is?
0: Um, all I know is it looks like, okay, putting together, it looks like you're, it's a community built around, I'm going to guess, playing advanced D&D. And it seems like, from what I also have read, it looks like you're trying to put modules into specific locations and trying to create a unified world around these adventures. And it's kind of more of a, I say collaborative, but it's kind of more of a, a shared first edition style universe.
1: Congratulations, my friend, you have just Discovered the tip of the iceberg, the tip of the tip. Yes, you are right. It is all of those things, and um, the uh, the origins of it date back to I want to say two thousand seven, two thousand eight, two thousand eight. I think um, this was when our our Easy Town Radio podcast was winding down. We had just done our twenty sixth episode, and we were getting ready to think about what to do next creatively, just as creative people who need creative outlets. And for me, I wanted to revisit first edition A, B, and D. So I began to put together the sandbox for the, the classic GDQ 1 through 7 campaign. And so I put in a, a little place for where the hail giant had his fortress. And I put in a little place for where the king has his castle. And that's the king who's going to give the heroes their mission to go and take care of the hill giants, and then go take care of the frost giants after that, and so on. So it just began as one little map. It became to be known as the the little map that could. It was the little map that measured, I think, 14 inches by 11 inches. Oh, no, 17 by 14. 17 by 14, I think. And I sprinkled in a few places involving a few adventure modules and had this be the sandbox in which our players would have their adventures. So we began to use that. That was in its earliest stage. And then <clears throat> as a few years went by, and by the time 2012, 2013 rolled around, I had become a writer for Gygax magazine, which ran for six issues, so that was fun. I was involved with TSR 2.0 and became a senior editor for their multiverse website for TSR hobbies, where we had done all sorts of great stuff, great articles with content for folks that would come and visit the site. Luke Gygax and I started to chat. And Luke got involved, became a co-creator with me of the bench leader sandbox. And he started creating some cities and we started putting them around and he started helping me create certain situations. And he created our quote unquote Godzilla for the bench leader world. And um, he was called the Ruco. Just like Gary Gygax before him, created Unga for his Isle of the Ape adventure module. Luke Gygax created um, the RUCO, which our players have still not yet encountered, by the way. But So there's a bit about the origins. It dates back to 2008, and it began to develop a lot more by the time 2012 and 2013 rolled around. And the collaborations with Luke began, and then the collaborations with Keith Baker began. And so between the three of us, before we knew it, we had this incredible sandbox that had encompassed more than 100 of the classic TSR and Judges Guild adventure modules and locations and places of interests and big beds. We just data mined all of it from from the classic source material and renaming very little, if anything, not even bothering to reskin stuff, just taking it, plugging it in and creating this sort of vibrant sandbox that has more than 400,000 square miles of adventure area with all of these different types of climate and terrain sprinkled about here and there. There's mountains and there's jungles and there's glaciers and there's wherever you want to go. And wherever you go, you might find all of a sudden you're caught into an adventure module of some sort. We have different ones right now that are running right at the moment that are sort of happening in the background. The uh, the G three adventure module, where the players go to fight the fire giant king, is currently in progress, and that is having an impact on what goes on in game time with other adventures that are being run by other dungeon masters. So it becomes a sort of living, breathing. I almost want to say museum for the old modules, helping to keep the old ways alive a little bit, helping to nourish those old roots of the RPG hobby in a fun way that's inclusive and immersive and collaborative and saying to the world, we're here, and we're not here because we want to monetize this in any way. We're not trying to have this be about money. We're trying to have this be about hey, we're here, who knows for how much longer. So let's enjoy our time together. And let's not only celebrate the classics, but let's commemorate them too and give them new life in fun ways. For instance, I've been DMing S3 for two years now. How does one DM a module for two years? Well, the module is called Expedition to the Barrier Peaks, with me as the DM emphasis is on the word expedition we have two parties this is a double helix campaign which means we have two parties on their own adventure helix intertwining happening in real game time with one another simultaneous right so here we've got one party that went to the crash landed ufo they traveled 500 miles from the King's Castle where they were given their mission, and now they are 500 miles away from the King's Castle. The other party is search and rescue to find the first party, and that other party is 500 miles away at the King's Castle. Their adventure begins at the same time as the other adventure begins. So one party in the spacecraft, another party looking for that party. and. Dragging about with all sorts of fun NPC interaction in between and exploring of the sandbox. Going through the map, visiting this town, that town, visiting this fort, that fort, contemplating whether or not to allow yourself to enjoy a side quest in this module or that module. There's temptation at every turn. So when I say emphasis on expedition, I also mean that half the fun is getting there. So as a DM, for me, I am interested in seeing how long we can continue this adventure. There has not yet been one player character death in all of these two years, amazingly so. And yet there have been plenty of NPC deaths and some of them quite memorable. And at the time, some of our players were role-playing the NPCs when the NPCs died. That's another way we keep things fresh here. We incorporate players as role-playing NPCs. You can come and join my adventure, but just keep in mind that you'll be asked to improvisationally role-play NPCs on the spot while knowing very little about them, if anything at all, or perhaps knowing something about them, just enough to to give you something to to work on. Um, So that's a bit about the sandbox itself. And word started to get around, and now we receive promotional samples from all of these wonderful companies looking to boost their signal and have us award promotional samples of their stuff as prizes in our contests whether it's dice or dice trays or dice towers or anything. I mean, you've probably seen some of the stuff that we give away as prizes in the contests, and it just keeps rolling in. People want to support first edition AD&D. They love what we do. We are also NSFW. We are underground. You can say we are the... NSFW darlings of the underground first edition AB&B hobby. That might be a good way to explain us. Uh, What we do is uh, for adults, by adults, and um, we have a good time with that and enjoying that ourselves. And having that creative outlet is nice. And again, knowing that we're not trying to monetize this in any way or boost our fame in any way, I'm not really one of those people that's interested in fame, but I certainly am interested in seeing the first edition A, B, and B hobby remain something that is celebrated and commemorated. And if I can be one of the folks who helps with that, then I feel like I'm doing the right thing. So for me, it comes down to that, really, just you know, knowing that I'm enjoying the hobby and having it be something I can turn to to give me peace and to give me the scratch on the itch that can only be scratched in this way. It's a strange way to to scratch an itch uh, when you think about how few people celebrate First Edition A, B, and B or still play it today. Uh, most of the First Edition A, B, and B hobbyists that I first enjoyed the hobby with many years ago moved on to the next later editions or moved on to other systems altogether and never really came back to first edition AD&D. Never really, in my opinion, explored it enough. There's a lot to explore. That's not to also take away the fact that there's a lot else to explore, too. And so I don't want to say that first edition AD&D is better or put it on a pedestal and say that, you know, uh, so don't misconstrue my meaning, but first edition AD&D, sometimes I'll see folks come back to it and enjoy it with us for their first time in a lot of years. And they'll say to me, Tim, I haven't played first edition AD&D in 30 years. This is going to be great. I said, yeah, it is going to be great. And I'm not going to be one of those hobbyists who says, where have you been all this time? Harumph. And I'm yeah. not going to be one of those hobbyists who says, welcome back. I'm going to be the hobbyist who says, welcome home. That really is Ben Academy, a place where people can go and be themselves, where adults can go and be adults and enjoy adult being situations and adult humor and adult language and not have to filter yourselves really. That's not what we're about. We do it tastefully though, mind you. Nobody's getting out of hand here. But we do appreciate the R-rated Element of what goes on here, we all have that side of us. We rarely have the creative outlet or a place where we can go to express ourselves in that manner. And, and um, this is a this is a place where that can be done. And it's not just adventures and contests. It's there's a lot of stuff that goes on at Benchleydale Academy also that falls into the entertainment category. We have game shows. We've taken the Hollywood Squares game show, and we've turned it into Benchleydale Squares, in which we have, instead of nine celebrities that you might know on Hollywood Squares, many of which are C-list or B-list, mind you, in Benchleydale Squares, you'll have nine NPCs. That are often role played by our players, and during the game, I'll be the host of the game show, and we'll have two players go head to head as Player One and Player Two, and they have to ask the Bench Leader and PCs. Um, well, I'm sorry, they don't ask. the uh, The host asks the players a question. They then choose to agree or disagree, and the uh, they must agree or disagree with what it is that the NPC says. I think. Um, explaining it very poorly but the point <laughs> is we have game shows here you can enjoy uh bench squares you can enjoy bottle of that genie which is another favorite of ours you can also enjoy the gossip game and you can enjoy other programming such as inside joke which we just launched last night that's going to be a new a new a new show quote unquote that you can follow along with that bench Academy and um and inside joke is going to be, and already is now that we had our first ever episode of it last night. Our pilot episode. It is the first and only, and probably will be the only ever, first edition AD&D show in the galaxy that features inside jokes that you would be aware of if you partook took in our S3 campaign that's ongoing, the double helix campaign. And uh, so we did one that we put up our first episode last night, and it's already been a big hit. I see we got some likes. Um, and uh, let's see, um, that one was starring Jimmy Fallon and Elmo. So if you're out there and you caught the very first uh, ever episode of Inside Joke, I hope you enjoyed it. So uh, be on the lookout for more Inside Joke here at uh, Ben Academy. And um, so, and also if you have ideas for, for game shows or content programming that you might like to see at Bench Academy, you can feel free to either let myself know or let any of our faculty know. We have many fine headmasters and headmistresses here at the Academy who help the cadets as they come in and help to uh, show them around, give them an orientation as it were. And from time to time, I'll film on Zoom an orientation of, hey, here's what's new at the Academy. Hey, here's how you can get involved. You know, Or if you just wanna hang out and be a friend of the show, that's cool too, it's up to you. And you can find the orientation videos at our YouTube channel. It's amazing to me to think we actually have a YouTube channel with more than five followers. Um, we have somewhere between 80 and 90 followers now, which is almost inconceivable. Um, But uh, thanks to all those out there who've been following along with us on YouTube, and um, if you would ever like to see a taste of what happens uh, during our S3 Double Helix Expedition to the Barrier Peaks campaign, you can find the actual play video recordings are there. We use Zoom as a platform for this. We do not use Roll20 or Fantasy Grounds or Discord or any of the other more popular, more conformist avenues. I like Zoom because of its non-conformist element. And there's there's a big part of that also in me as a person. And I think a lot of that comes out with Benchleydale Academy. Much of what we do is non-conformist in nature. And I quite frankly think there should be a lot more of that in the world pun intended when I say frankly, as in Frank Zappa, one of my big heroes in terms of uh, being a creative expresser of creative vision. I often look to uh, Frank Zappa and his music and his creations for inspiration for myself. Miles Davis too. This was when I was still a music producer, which I no longer am. The entertainment world was fun, and it almost destroyed me and I was glad to escape it. And I realized early enough that fame isn't for me, but I'm able to find still that I can use a lot of my entertainment background in what we do at Bench Fidel Academy to help keep things fresh and fun, not just for those who enjoy the more hands-on approach with us and for those who partake in the contests and the adventure sessions and our workshops, But even for those who just want to chill, come into the academy, chill, enjoy the show, enjoy the content, chime in once in a while, click like or click whatever, click ha-ha. I don't don't care really what you do at the academy, just um, don't be a prick. And we have had to swing a band hammer on more than one occasion, and that's always fun. You might think I was about to say, oh, that's never fun, but no. That's always fun. I'm an old band pro. And eventually the Academy isn't the only Facebook group that I've been an admin for. And I've had an awful lot of practice with knowing when it's time to see the writing on the wall and remove the bad apple from the bunch and to do it quietly. Yeah,
0: We're all adults. We have limited time. We're, we're here for an experience. We're not here to be experiencing the drama that other people want to drag into a group. It's like, there's plenty right. of places to bring gra- drama. There's legitimate places to put your drama, but you know what? Yes, you're there for right. a specific reason, so you that's know, there's, right. there's, there's There's Twitter if you really want drama.
1: <laughs> yeah, the, and and there is um, a lot of benefit that comes from swinging the band hammer, and I know people are reluctant to swing the band hammer, and I, and I think I understand why, uh, but I'm here to tell you that the band hammer is your friend. And so it's okay. You can quote me on that. Um, I have swung it mightily at times. I have swung it quietly (laughs) at times. And, uh, sometimes I, all I have to do is just wave it in the air, not swing it. And people will behave themselves. It's a, it's a very useful tool. And I think that uh, people ought to use it. Um, anyway, that's, um, a bit about what goes on here at Ben little Academy, and I hope I didn't lose you there. There's a lot of no, ground no. to cover with it. No. I don't know of anything else quite like it, and it it still hasn't yet become what it could be, and it hasn't reached its maximum potential. And I don't even know what its maximum potential could be or is, and um, that's also part of. Of the adventure for us too.
0: Yeah. It's as many you just don't know. Right. You just put it out there and you do your best. And and uh, sounds like you're putting a lot of effort uh uh towards it. So yeah, on, on Facebook, I'll I'll include links on there, uh on the show notes. But uh but anyway, I think we're hitting the time space continuing, Tim. Uh, I think we're hitting uh, <laughs> And thank you for coming on. It's been a great discussion. My pleasure, it's also bro. great Thank learn about you. eventually, Dale. And, and the, the work that you're putting into it and the direction that you're going.
1: Well, I appreciate the time. And I greatly appreciate also, Jeff, what you are doing with RPG ramblings. And I hope that it continues to grow. And I'm going to do my part to help boost the signal. And I hope that you'll share your posts at Benchley Dale Academy too and let them know what's happening with the RPG stuff. I think that would be very cool.
0: If you're wanting to, I I try to be very considerate where I post my. So I'm I'm also an admin for the RPG zine group, and I try not to only post ones that are related to zines. But uh, we can talk later, but uh, I have no problems posting there as well. But I don't want to also be that guy.
1: (laughs) You don't have to worry about it with us, pal. It's quite all right. Thank you.
0: All right. You take care.
1: You do the same.